Acts 27, starting at verse 1. And let's bow together in prayer. Father, we are grateful to you for this day that you've given us to be together, to worship you, to elevate and honor you and glorify you, to show our gratitude to you. Gratitude for salvation that was so costly to you, but that you offer freely to us by simply putting our trust in your son, Jesus Christ, and his finished work at Calvary. You, you now ask only that we put our trust in him, not ourselves, not religion, not some kind of religious ritual, but in Jesus, your son, your only provision for sin, the one who conquered death and is alive from the dead. Thank you for so great a salvation. Thank you for so great a message to share with those around us who are lost and dying and headed to a Christless eternity. Help us as we reach out to them. Thank you for Paul's example of leadership in Acts chapter 27. May we be that kind of person who is all in for you. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I was studying the book of Acts in Acts 27, as many of you know, uh, the Acts chapter 27 records Paul's trip from Caesarea to Rome, a trip that was a fated trip because the ship he was on went down and uh, so that's pretty much what Acts chapter 27 is about. We'll get some of the details and we'll see how it applies to our lives this morning. But as I thought about that ship, I thought back to about five years ago. Now, Kathy and I were not in a shipwreck. I want you to know that. But I thought back to about five years ago when Kathy and I were uh, on a cruise in the Caribbean and we were sitting in the chic dining room, that's what it's called, of Carnival Freedom, which is a great ship. And uh, we were seated in the dining room and having a great meal and just enjoying ourselves. It was Thursday night. We would be getting to port on Saturday morning or so we thought. And something happened that hadn't happened before on cruises the captain's voice comes over the intercom and says, I hate to interrupt your dinner, but I did want to give you an update on the storm. Storm? What storm? How many of you have been on cruises? How many? Quite a few of you. You're not thinking about what's going on in the world. You're thinking about where you're at. You're thinking about the ship. You're thinking about the ports of call. You're not thinking about the news. At least we weren't. So he said, I wanted to give you an update on the storm. Okay. The storm he was talking about was Hurricane Harvey. And uh, he said, now, it's looking like maybe we won't be able to hit the port by Saturday. We may have to stay out longer. And oh, by the way, 
If you have a car in the parking lot at the port and you have somebody who can come get it, that would be good. Now, I thought about that because that's as close to a storm on the sea as we've ever come to. I mean, the, the dip, most difficult thing we had to experience was the roiling, angry sea, and it was roiling and it was angry. But that's it. We were never near the storm because of all the advanced technology that ships have today. They kept us far enough away from it, even though we were still on the Caribbean. Um, we, we didn't have to worry about the storm. And that's where the similarity with Acts chapter 27 ends. In Acts chapter 27, you have howling winds, waves breaking over the ship. The ship has to be trussed to prevent it from breaking apart. All that expert seamanship could do has been done. 276 lives are at the mercy of wind and waves. And into this chaos steps Paul, the man of God. Into this chaos steps Paul, the man of God. Paul, as we'll see as we go through chapter 27 of Acts, he takes over leadership. Now, the only expertise that Paul has that allows him to be leader in this situation is he's already been in three shipwrecks. What a life, right? He's already been in three shipwrecks. This is his fourth that we know about. But you know the reason he steps up and takes leadership is because he's a man after God's own heart. He's a man fully committed to God. He's a man who gave his all, was all in for Jesus Christ. Warren Wiersbe said this, Dr. Luke, of course you know he's the writer of the book of Acts. Dr. Luke was certainly not writing an allegory but he did use this exciting event to show how one man's faith can make a big difference for him and others in the storms of life. What a great statement. How one man's faith can make a big difference for him and others in the storms of life. What an encouragement, Wiersbe says, to our own faith. You see, whatever befalls you and me in this life, God can use to strengthen us, but more importantly, he can use it to strengthen the people around us, particularly the unbelievers around us who need Jesus Christ. So whatever befalls us, God can use to strengthen us. And God can use us to strengthen those around us. One man or one woman or one young person of faith willing to step out in faith, willing to trust God, willing to be obedient to God, willing to be sensitive to God's work, word can make a huge difference, even a saving difference to the people around them in the storms of life. 
you may be facing a storm right now in your life, or you may know folks who are facing maybe sickness, personal relationship issues, on-the-job issues. God strategically places us in storms. God strategically places us in storms. And Lord willing, before we finish together this morning, we'll be talking about six ways that God uses difficulties or storms in our lives. What can one person do? In the devotional book, Daily Disciple, excuse me, Daily Discipleship, the author shares this story. Although it has been almost 40 years, it seems like only yesterday that I heard Dawson Troutman, who, by the way, is the founder of the Navigators Ministry. He said, although it's been almost 40 years, it seems like only yesterday that I heard Dawson Troutman preach to us about God's search for a certain kind of person. One of Dawson's recurring themes was the value of one person who is fully committed to God. And he always challenged us to be that person. Can I echo that with you this morning and with me this morning? The value of one person, one man, one woman, one young person who is fully committed to God. You might be that person. I might be that person. Well, he goes on to share that the example of D.L. Moody, founder of Moody Bible Institute. As a young man, D.L. Moody once heard a preacher say, the world has yet to see what God can do with a man who is fully yielded to him. So Moody resolved in his heart By the grace of God, I will be that man. In spite of all of Moody's educational and physical limitations, God used him to bring thousands into the kingdom. God is still looking for that man or woman with a heart to do his will and with a commitment to his work. Will you tell him today that you are available? That's that's what Acts 27 is about. Paul was an available man. He made himself available to God and he was used in a mighty way. And one person under God, believing God, led to the saving of 275 lives, 276 with his own. So will we be that kind of person today? When I think of that kind of person, when I think of the idea of what can one person do, uh, I think back to, and and forgive me, I I just want to use a quick Old Testament illustration. Uh, I think back to Jonathan in 1 Samuel chapters 13 and 14. Uh, Israel was in desperate straits, and you you can read the story sometime on your own. Saul is king at the time. Israel, of course, Jonathan's his son. Israel faces overwhelming, uh, an overwhelming Philistine force. They are so overwhelming, and the only people in Israel who had swords were Saul and Jonathan. 
The Philistines kept those kind of weapons from the Israelites. So we have Saul and Jonathan, the only people with swords, the only people with weapons, those kinds of weapons. And we see the people of Israel melting away at this overwhelming Philistine force. It looked hopeless till Jonathan stepped up. One writer described it this way, this historian described it this way. Accompanied only by his armor bearer, Jonathan crossed from Geba to Michmash, Geba on the south, Michmash on the north, descending and climbing steep ridges en route, and attacked and defeated an entire Philistine garrison. News of so courageous an exploit spread rapidly. Now think about this. I, I don't want to go too fast through this, and I don't want to spend our whole time on this. But there's an overwhelming force. And we just have Jonathan and his armor bearer, and Jonathan's the one with a sword, and they attack this Philistine garrison, and they conquer it. All, meantime, Saul's kind of pacing back and forth. I don't know what to do. All the troops are going home. This is a terrible situation. But Jonathan steps up because he believes God. Because he believes God. And he steps up and, and, and he defeats the Philistine garrison, and, and the writer goes on to say, news of so courageous an exploit spread rapidly, bringing new hope to the Israelites and resulting in the return of many deserters to Saul's army. At, that, at this time, too, God intervened to bring an earthquake. Isn't that amazing? When God's man, God's woman, God's young person steps up, then God steps up. And he brought an earthquake. And the earthquake, so discombobulated, is that a word? I don't know. So discombobulated the Philistine troops that Israel won a great victory that day. What can one person do? What can one person do? What can one man, one woman, one young person do? So one more thing I want to say, and then we'll, we'll really get into chapter 27. And that's this. We're on the voyage of life as much for the people around us as for ourselves. What do I mean by that? I mean God is doing something in your life, and he's doing something in my life through the crises we face, through the challenges we face through the storms we face, if you want to use that picture. God's doing something in our lives. But as, as important as that is, he's also doing something in the lives of the people around us as they watch us go through the storm. And they see what we're made of. So when you think about it, don't just think about what is God doing in my life. You see, Paul... Paul knew that he was going to get to Rome. Why did he know that? Because earlier in the book of Acts, God said to him, Paul, you're going to preach in Rome. Now, when God says something, he doesn't say it idly. He doesn't say, Paul, I just want to pump you up. You know, you're going to get to Rome. 
No, God said to Paul, you're going to get to Rome. So Paul knew he was going to Rome. Paul knew what the God of word, God's word was to him. By the way, that's Acts 23, 11. So again, what, what can one person do? And will you and I be that person? What can one person do? And will you and I be that person? Well, I said one more thing. One more thing before we get into 27, and that is this. This is not an allegory. There, there's, there's a lot of discussion, and, and I, I spent some time in the first service. I'm not, I don't have the time in this service uh, to talk about six ideas people have about why Luke spent so much time describing this shipwreck, this voyage and shipwreck. But I do want you to see, and one of those is that some people believe it's an allegory. It, it didn't really happen. It's a story to teach a truth. Well, it's not an allegory. It's not an allegory. And an, an expert seaman by the name of James Smith stepped up to prove that it's not an allegory and that it's an actual event that, that uh, has all the earmarks of a real event. His name is James Smith. James Smith. And he studied this voyage and he wrote the classic on Acts 27, which is still available today through libraries. I don't think you're going to find it on Amazon. But through libraries, this, his book is still available called The Voyage and Shipwreck of St. Paul. The Voyage and Shipwreck of St. Paul. In that book, he verified the accuracy of the details of Luke's account concerning the actions of the crew, the route that they took, and the geography that they went through. That's The Voyage and Shipwreck of St. Paul by James Smith. All right, let's, let's uh, get into verse 1. We read in, in Acts 27, 1, when it was decided that we would sail for Italy, Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius, who belonged to the Imperial Regiment. We boarded a ship from Adramedium about to sail for ports along the coast of the province of Asia, and we put out to sea. Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was with us. Well, we learn several things in this particular section. We learn that the, the centurion, and by the way, a centurion was simply somebody who was over a hundred soldiers. Uh, centurions actually come off really good in the pages of Scripture, most of them, most of them, and most of them are, are helpful to the church, as Julius is helpful to Paul in this situation. Julius belonged to the imperial regiment. The word imperial means literally revered regiment. It was an honorific title. It was a, a title of honor, an honorary title given to certain troops. So Julius was over the honored or revered regiment. We read here that uh, they boarded a ship from Adramedium. Now, Adramedium was, uh, was their port and they were headed back. He was about to sail for, 
the ship was about to sail for ports along the coast of the province of Asia, and we put out to sea. They were on their way home. You see, it was getting toward the time of the year when you would no longer travel on the sea because it was, the danger of storms was too high, and so you wouldn't travel on sea. So uh, the Julius found this ship and thought, I'll t- I'll, we'll at least take this ship as far as we can toward Rome and get as far as we can toward Rome, and then we'll find another ship, which is exactly what he did. So this ship was from uh, that area uh, of Adramedium, and they were on their way back to there. Now, another thing that he mentions here, uh, two other things I want to look at. He says here, when it was decided we would sail for Italy, Paul and some other prisoners. Paul and some other prisoners. Now, there, we don't know how many other prisoners w- there were on this ship. We don't know why these other prisoners were on the ship. But we do know this, that Luke chooses an interesting word when he says some other prisoners. There are two words for other in Greek. One is allos, which means another of the same kind. And one is heteros, which means another of a different kind. We get our, like it's, it's attached to a heterosexual, for instance. Uh, another of a different kind. So allos is another of the same kind. Heteros is an, uh, an other of a different kind. The word that Luke uses here is heteros. Heteros. Well, how were these prisoners different? They were different kind of prisoner from Paul. That's what Luke is seeming to tell us here. Well, what is happening is Paul was there, why? Because of religious reasons. He wasn't an insurrectionist. He wasn't a a thief. He wasn't a murderer. He wasn't any of those things. And on top of it, he was innocent. So the way that they are different from him is others... Prisoners on that ship deserved to be there. Other prisoners on that ship were guilty of certain acts. Other prisoners on that ship, no doubt, were headed toward the Colosseum. What would happen in the Colosseum in Rome to those prisoners? They would go to the lions. They would be torn apart by beasts. I find it interesting that on their way to their deaths, they encountered the Apostle Paul. Think about that. Who else would you want to encounter if you were an unbeliever and you were convicted of a crime and you were about to pay with your life? Who else would you want to encounter except the Apostle Paul? They were on their way to death. And if they didn't trust Jesus Christ as their Savior, put their faith in the one who died for them, was buried, was raised from the dead, if they didn't do that, they were going to a Christless eternity. Not just a grave, but a Christless eternity. Can you imagine the conversations with Paul? Now, why do I I mention that? This is why it's important. The unbelievers that you and I meet every day are on their way to death. The unbelievers that we meet every day are on their way to death. 
Oh, they may not have been convicted of a crime. They may not have been a criminal like these on this ship, like these prisoners, but they are on their way to death and eternity without Christ. So when we, th- when we think about the unbelievers that we encounter, those that we may know in our lives or those that we just encounter, remember they are on their way to death. And what do they need? Please tell me you know. What do they need? Jesus, yeah. They need Jesus. Well, one more thing to mention from verse 2. We read and we put out to sea, Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was with us. There were only two other believers, as far as we know, on that ship with Paul, and that was Luke, because Luke uses we in this passage. It's another one of those we sections where Luke is one of the travelers. Luke is on the ship. And the only other believer we know of is Aristarchus. Now, Luke was probably on the ship in one of several ways. He could have been the ship's doctor. He could have been Paul's personal doctor. Luke was a physician. Or he could have been there as Paul's servant. Uh, Roman citizens who weren't convicted of a crime, only charged with one, not convicted of one, were given great latitude. They could bring servants on board with them. So it may be that that, uh, Luke was a servant to him, or his doctor, or the ship's doctor. Aristarchus was probably serving Paul. He came aboard, he came to be part of it to serve Paul. We encounter Aristarchus later in the scripture, Colossians 4.10, Philemon 24. Uh, Colossians 4.10, Paul calls Aristarchus my fellow prisoner. We don't know how, what happened there. In Philemon 24, he calls Aristarchus my fellow worker, my fellow worker. Well, the next day, verse 3, we landed at Sidon, and Julius, in kindness to Paul, allowed him to go to his friends so that they might provide for his needs. Now, we know that there was a church there. We know that there was a church there, a church that was established as a result of the exodus from Jerusalem that followed Stephen's martyrdom. There was a church in that area. Now, the question that we have to ask when it says the next day we landed at Sidon and Julius, in kindness to Paul, allowed him to go to his friends. In Greek, it doesn't say his friends. In Greek, it says they, Julius allowed him to go to the friends. The friends. Now, what difference does it make? Uh, it makes this difference. It could mean his friends. It could mean that Paul had people there he knew at the church at Sidon. Uh, it's interesting, though, it, it's the, it was one of the churches that came about because of Paul's persecution of the church following Stephen's martyrdom. It could be that there were personal friends there. But the phrase, the friends, is used to speak of Christians and the way they referred to each other. In other words, Christians referred to each other at that time, in that day, as the friend. 
So it may not be that Paul knew these people at all, but what he did know is they were believers in Jesus Christ. And that is a glorious thing to know that no matter you, where you and I go in this world, and there is another believer, we have a friend. We have somebody to have a relationship with, somebody to interact with, and it doesn't matter where we go in the world, where there are Christians, we find a friend. And we are a friend to them. Uh, I, I think of it, uh, especially for you folks in the Air Force, kind of the same way. You go from base to base to base to base, and everywhere you go, when you get there, you're part of a group. You find automatically your friend base. That's true for you and for me as believers in Jesus Christ. Everywhere we go, we find our friends, other believers who trust Jesus, other believers we can fellowship with. Well, from here, verse 4, from here, from, excuse me, from there we put out to sea again and passed to the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. When we had sailed across the open sea off the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship. By the way, that was a, an Egyptian ship. Egypt at this time in the world was the world's breadbasket. So this Alexandrian ship was, was sailing and uh, probably taking, taking grain to Rome. And the centurion found the Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy, put us on board. We made slow headway for many days and had difficulty arriving off Nidus when the wind did not allow us to hold our course. We sailed to the Lee, the east and north side of Crete. Opposite Salome, we moved along the coast with difficulty and came to a place called Fair Havens near the town of Lycia. Much time had been lost and sailing had already become dangerous because it was now after the fast. Now, what does that mean? The fast that it's referring to is the Day of Atonement. The fast that it's referring to is the Day of, the, of Atonement. And in this particular year, which we think is 59 AD, the Day of Atonement would have been October 5th. The Day of Atonement would have been October 5th. That was really too late to be sailing. It was after the 5th because they usually stopped sailing around September 14th and they didn't start sailing again till February or March of the next year. So it was too late actually to sail. Why was that? Because after September 14th, sea travel was hazardous due to the unsettled weather patterns. By early November, sea traffic ceased. Well, much time had been lost and sailing had already become dangerous because by now it was after the fast. So Paul warned them, men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo and to our own lives also. But the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and the owner of the ship. Paul recommended they not go on the centurion decided to take the advice of the others since the harbor was unsuitable the winter and the majority decided that we should sail on 
hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. There was a harbor in Crete. This was a harbor in Crete facing both southwest and northwest. In other words, it would be a place that they would be protected from the storms. When the gentle south wind began to blow, they thought they had obtained what they wanted, so they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force called the Northeaster swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind, so we gave way to it. We gave way to it and were driven along. As we passed to the lee of a small island named Cauda, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure. The lifeboat was towed behind the main boat and apparently had taken on so much water they were about to lose it. So they, they hoisted it aboard. They, they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together, fearing that it would, they would run aground in the sandbars of Sardis. They lowered the sea uh, anchor and let the ship be driven along. We took such a violent battering that the, from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. That's the cargo that was on the deck. On the third day, they shoot through the ship's tackle overboard. That is extra shipboard uh, instrumentation. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days. Why was that important? In that day, they navigated by the sun and the stars. They couldn't see the sun and the stars. Many days, the sun had not appeared. Storms continued raging. We finally gave up all hope of being saved. After the men had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up and he encouraged them. We'll get to that next week. I want to I wanna spend just the last minute or two or three that we have this morning to talk about what how do we make sense of the storms in our lives? How do we understand the difficulties that come into our lives? Uh, let me give you, there are going to be six altogether. I only have, I barely have time for three. Number one, lesson, call this a lesson in the storms of life or a lesson in the difficulties of life. Number one, storms do not always come because of some disobedience on our part. God sometimes allows us to go through storms. For instance, Paul was not disobedient, nor was he out of God's will. Paul was not disobedient, nor was he out of God's will. So, I mean, if you looked at someone like Jonah, Jonah was disobedient. The storm came into his life. The difficulty came into his life because he was disobedient to God. But with Paul, there was no disobedience. The first thing that you and I do sometimes when, when we run into difficulties, challenges, hard things in our lives, is we look and say, what did I do wrong? Maybe you did nothing wrong. Maybe you did nothing wrong. God is simply using that, allowing you to go through that storm. Paul was not disobedient, nor was he out of God's will. One writer said, Christ does not immunize Christians from problems that others in the world also face. Sometimes he miraculously delivers Christians from such situations, while at other times he gives Christians courage to endure natural and other disasters. So don't always think, well, there's something I did wrong. I'm being punished for uh, in this storm that I'm going through. Number two, storms bring out what is inside us. 
Storms bring out our true character. Crisis brings out our true character. Paul's character is abundantly revealed. Paul's character is abundantly revealed personally, publicly. So the question for us is how are we facing the crises? How are we facing the crises of our lives? Because not only does it matter how we are, it matters by those who are looking, matters to those who are looking on at us going through the crisis. Oswald Chambers said, we presume that we would be ready for battle if confronted with a great crisis. But it is not the crisis that builds something within us. It simply reveals what we are made up of already. Do you find yourself saying, if God calls me to battle, of course I will rise to the occasion? Yet you won't rise to the occasion unless you have done so on God's training ground. If you are not doing the task that is closest to you now, which God has engineered into your life, when the crisis comes, instead of being fit for battle, you will be revealed as being unfit. You see, the crisis reveals what is inside our true character. Number three, and our last one for this morning, we'll get the rest of the six next week. Number three, in spite of storms, God is still in control and furthering his purposes in your life and in my life. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for these lessons from Acts chapter 27, from Paul's life. Thank you for the record that you have preserved for us through Luke. Lord, we meet, may we, when we are going through the difficulties in life, the so-called storms of our lives, may we remember to trust you. And may we be an example to those around us, particularly unbelievers, that we have a God who is in control and who loves us and whom we love. We pray in Jesus' name.